The following program contains views and opinions that do not necessarily reflect those of KMRE staff or of the Spark Museum of Electrical Invention. I don't want to spend each of these briefings talking about misinformation. I'm going to keep fighting as hard as I can, and I encourage everyone who's listening and watching right now to continue making their voices heard. The challenge is never in the intent and our compassion and, and what the, the need we're trying to address. The challenge is always in the execution. There is a growing fear, I think, in this country that we are moving toward uh, what some would call an oligarchic form of society. But I do think Mexico will ultimately pay for it, and it's going to help both countries. Simply put, this is un-American and unconstitutional. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Welcome to the American Carnage Report. I'm Dave Willingham, and today I'm joined by Devlin Sweeney and Mike Estes. And uh, starting off this week, I uh, had kind of a surprise, well, to me, uh, the CHIP program, formerly known as S-CHIP, and before that, the CHILD Act, was initially passed in 1997 as a way to fund state programs that provide medical and dental coverage to children whose parents had low income but still made too much to qualify for Medicaid. Over that time, the program's grown to serve more than 8 million children across the country, and in mid-September, a reauthorization deal was struck between Senators Ron Wyden of Oregon and Orrin Hatch, but the Senate failed to act on it. Uh, the states have the authority to spend any funds from the 2017 budget that they have not yet spent, uh, but uh, by... March of next year, more than half of states will be out of money if there is not a reauthorization in place. Is this uh, October 1st, end of September deadline mean we're, we're, we've missed our opportunity for 2018, or can something happen by the end of the year? Something can happen at any point. They can reauthorize the program and uh, reallocate the money, but this means that they... It's going to come down to a, a really exciting year and finish that may or may not happen. Correct. Okay. And if I remember right, C-CHIP was kind of the compromise because before Obamacare, it was the last push for, like, universal health care and ended with them saying, okay, why don't we at least insure the children? Right. This, this, came, this, this was one of um, Hillary Clinton's big, like, bullet point legislative accomplishments um, from the 90s. Um, like, on the stump last year, she would talk a lot about the S-CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, um, and kind of, like, as a pillar of, like, her credentials in healthcare and, and kind of as a lead into talking more about um, healthcare, which is an area she was really involved in. So this this is sort of one of her legacies from the Bill Clinton era. Right. And yeah, this came out. They they tried comprehensive healthcare reform in the 90s, which clearly did not happen. And this was one of the compromise things. Instead, they got a bill that had uh, some like $16 billion in it for children's health care, but didn't define what that was. So th there was a bunch of competing legislation. And what we got was initially the Child Act, which was, if I remember correctly, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch uh, suggesting this program that gave matching funds to states to cover these, cover these folks. Uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act bumped that up so that in many states it actually wound up covering... 100% of the costs, or at minimum 88%. Makes you wonder what the Senate's going to be like after or Orion Hatch <laughs> retires. So he's he's got sort of some personal namesake to seeing the program continue since he was one of the creators. Yeah, and uh, one of the 
one of the sticking points in the negotiations between uh, the the two parties in the Senate was how quickly do we get rid of that Obamacare increase? And the Republicans wanted to get rid of it immediately. And the deal, the, the compromise that they struck mid-month was phase it out over the next four years. But uh, Which gives you the ability to reverse it in the 11th hour if the administration changes. Reverse it or at least give states a bit of time to prepare. Yeah, that has been something I've been noticing of most of the legislative bills that have been passed in this Congress is they haven't really given states much time to react or to operate. They all seem to be very, I need to show results now and I'm going to act immediately. Uh, It was why I was actually so surprised by DACA's reaction because it was delayed by six months. It showed an unusual level of planning and restraint. Well, a component of each of the health care repeal bills that have failed was kicking it out past 2018 or or elements of it out until after um, the next uh, midterm elections. Of course, those didn't come to play. Which which is just smart politics, right? You, you You put the poison later on, although that did wind up, I think, hurting the Affordable Care Act considerably because they passed this act with all of the negative news around it, the new taxes, the scaremongering and all of that, and it didn't take effect until 2014. And they kept delaying the mandate, too, which uh, meant that people had longer to panic about the poison pill. If you are uh, concerned about children's health care, I encourage you to contact your representatives and senators right away. Uh, There will be a clip here telling you how to do so. To contact your member of Congress, you can call the Congressional Switchboard at 202-224-3121. But don't reach out to the uh, federal, the executive branch for health care because <laughs> that particular guy is currently looking for new employment. Yeah, we don't have Tom Price to kick around anymore because his uh, uh, travel, personal travel, chartering jets, military flights scandal came to a head this week. There was some really excellent reporting out of Politico about uh, uh, just kind of an estimate of how much money he had spent, how much taxpayer money had been spent on his behalf, chartering flights, getting military flights. It was up to and perhaps more than a million dollars and really excellent timing after, you know, he the the first half a million worth of uh, travel came to light and he went on TV and he magnanimously promised to spend $50,000 repaying that. Repaying his seat his on the seat. F- flights, not not the whole cost of the flights. Well, it's just like when you charter a bus, right? If it's just you, you only pay for that seat, right? <laughs> it's just like chartering a bus. <laughs> this was kind of a surprise to me because this is the kind of just kind of general background noise grift that we seem to have – that seems to have just become a natural part of this administration. Uh, Tom Price was not alone in taking a lot of flights that are paid for by the uh, taxpayer that are questionable. You know, Brian Zinke, Mm -hmm. Scott Pruitt, Steve Mnuchin, uh, Dave Shulkin, among others. and People who are probably accustomed to using that as a means of travel. Sure, all, you know, relatively wealthy people. But why Tom Price? Why is Tom Price out? I mean, it it was – he – Spent the most, um, so he's he was the top dollar figure. Even though many others were doing similar behavior, um, the 
the way he handled it wasn't great. So, so you look at why, why would Trump force someone out? And the only reason he's done that in the past is um, it's usually around that person's media optics is now either outshadowing Trump himself or making Trump look bad or making it look like if Trump doesn't do something here, Trump will look bad. It's all, it always has to be about Donald Trump himself. So this didn't quite rise to the level of Scaramucci where it was like he's becoming such a big media darling that he's taking the spotlight away. It wasn't quite that theme that we've seen um, before. Um, but you got you have to wonder if um, the major the third major failure of a health bill in the Senate the same week if Tom Price's usefulness um, as health and human services secretary was was also passed is like okay is this a is this Trump saying we're done with healthcare you're fired we're moving on also you know you made you made me look like a fool with uh, these expensive flights it's uh, that the failure of the healthcare bills has got to be a factor here i just figure they hit the roulette thing because uh is that at the moment, it seems like we lose an executive out of the branch about every couple weeks, and it's been a little <laughs> while since we lost the last one. So I figured it was just time to shed a new, a new cabinet member. Politico uh, did some great reporting here, um, a series of them. I didn't see any uh, fake news um, pushback on this. There was no attempt to say this. You know, this didn't happen. The media is just digging and mudslinging. Uh, it was just sort of acknowledged as fact and fact from the beginning, and there was consequences. Um, you know, they tried to explain it away and say, "Well, we'll pay back some of this," even offering to pay it back as as kind of a joke um, that that was. Um, kind of acknowledges is, that it existed. It is acknowledging the seriousness of of it and not um, trying to refute it, and that's I think somewhat remarkable. Um, when I mean, you know, we. We're going to talk about Puerto Rico in a second, but, you know, Trump, there's nothing they won't call fake news, even in the presence of real video footage of the terrible thing happening. Um, but to why did this break through as like concrete truth um, that had that led to consequence? So my follow up question to that for both of you is, is this does this show a roadmap for picking off some of these bad actors like uh, Ryan Zinke, who is turning the Interior Department into his own personal fiefdom. He's pulling agents from around the country to come and serve as his personal 24-hour bodyguard. He's freaking out some of the long-term Interior employees by not allowing people to take cell phones into meetings and you know having this really weird secretive thing. Elevators don't open on all floors anymore. It's Is this showing a path to maybe get some more of those folks out of there. The pattern seems to be kind of like what Mike was talking about. If you can trace this to make it look, make Trump look bad as a side effect for it, you have a route to getting rid of them. So if you're trying to get rid of one of the cabinet members, it seems like just dialing up their publicity is the way to do it. Yeah, and I, the the flight stuff and the way they handled the aftermath, um, I think for Trump's base starts to look bad. And, you know, this is, Gov- this is wasteful government spending that doesn't need to happen, and they don't seem sorry about it. Um, and I think w- without action on Trump's part, without consequence here, I think Trump's base would start to get a little jaded about some of these things. And I don't know, you know, Ryan Zinke, you know, destroying um, national monuments or selling them off or whatever, that's not going to upset Trump's base. And so you have to come at it from some other angle of is is there waste, waste, fraud, or abuse that is – particularly damning even to very conservative red meat kind of Trump-based people. 
get him to do something amnesty related with the uh, interior lands that would that would do it um accepting of uh, uh homosexual employees maybe just something that would really dig under the skin good to know looking forward uh want to turn now to the the other great big news end of the administration this week they released a nine-page kind of guideline on what they want for tax reform it sounds like they have all woken up to the idea that Healthcare reform isn't going to happen anytime soon for them. So uh, they've decided to move on to the next thing. Well, they didn't release too many details, but the details they did release, the, the kind of overarching theme was the idea that we need to make taxes simpler, uh, we need to make tax, taxes less, and a lot less complicated. So it does some flattening of the brackets, it removes some of the special rules. So, you know, your tax rate is this, but if it falls within this area, it's moved, which is the alternative minimum tax. That's at a high level. But when you dig into the details, it removes a whole bunch of taxes that predominantly were designed to prevent rich people from abusing the tax code. It's the alternative minimum taxes. No matter how many deductions you have, you're going to pay a minimum of this tax if you make this much. It also removes some really popular uh, deductions for personal families, like the mortgage interest tax credit, uh, and is kind of shifting away from incentivizing people to buy houses and just block granting them deductions by family. That and on a on a budget level, it runs up the deficit deficit by an incredible amount and cuts taxes for rich people. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um I I I hope third time uh, is the is third nail in the coffin on the healthcare bill is is the last one and I I, I wonder if we're going to be talking for the next three months uh, sort of exclusively about a tax bill. Um, this seems uh, to me like we're going to see a legislative outcome here. Um, like they're going to get a tax bill. It, there, there's no way they can screw this up like they've screwed up the the healthcare bill. And Republicans are very motivated. Um, many Republicans at the core I think are elected to Congress on this issue alone. Like they could care less about anything else. This is the big one. So um, there's the the theme of, of reducing all the, the small little deductions and doing a bigger um, standard deduction is interesting um, and c- could be good. Um, mm-hmm. The details of where it's at right now definitely do not help out those in the middle or, or lower incomes much at all. And in some calculations, it can actually be kind of a, a, a little bit of a negative here. Um, and I liked one of the details of the tax plan, the idea that you're going to remove your little deductions and you're going to replace it with just uh, a standard deduction. And for those listening who aren't sure, standard deduction is what you put on your taxes if you don't want to break it out into incredible detail. You just say, it's kind of like per diem. It's saying, I qualify for about this much. So one of the details of the tax plan was just to increase that for families and individuals uh, to the point where they wouldn't be incentivized to go find loopholes. And the itemizing is is tricky. It's a lot of paperwork. You usually have to pay someone to do it. It's kind of expensive. Um, I'm always my family's always on the fence about whether it works out or not. Um, if you're if you own a home and you have a child and you like one of you is freelance or has a small business and like you get to like write off your cell phone and your spare bedroom. Like once you get into the level of operating your own business. Um, that's about the threshold where it starts to make sense to itemize. And if you operate your own business, you effectively have to itemize on some level because you have to break out the taxes and revenue, the expenses and revenue associated with your business. But uh, like you were saying, having a house makes a big difference. Paying a lot of interest 
makes another big difference. And if you give a lot to charity, that's another instance where you might. Uh, but th- those that. type of people um, are typically going to be on the higher end of a middle class um, tax range. If you are a single income household salary or even two modest incomes, but salaried and kind of simple, you're likely better off with the um, standard deduction. And there's an inherent problem here, which is that, uh, and you were you touched on it, which is if you are at a low income level, odds are you're also at a lower education level. And to kind of highlight the amount of education you need to to fully understand the tax code, I have a bachelor's degree in accounting, and I studied tax for a brief amount of time, and I can't tell you the extent of all the tax deductions that exist for lower and middle income people. I can tell you the ones most people take. Uh, but I have to look to reference. So that is an incredible knowledge burden to put on lower income people. So, you know, capitalist America provides where knowledge doesn't exist and there are businesses to do that. But that means that you're, you, there's an expense associated with, uh, with filing those taxes. So you've put the burden of that knowledge on the lowest income people. Whereas what Mike mentioned, people who are of that upper income might just pay someone to do it, and that would be okay. That would be minimal in the grand scheme of their income. Now, there were movements throughout in the last five or six years to automate tax returns because that's doable with our current tax structure, and those were killed in Congress. Well, with with good reason. Those members of Congress take a lot of money from TurboTax. <laughs> The other um, interesting thread through this is it's uh, the, the proposal as as put out, which will obviously change um, huge increase in deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I saw five five or six trillion over ten years. And you know the the Obama administration um, could be summarized as Republicans talking about the deficit almost exclusively. Um, any any proposal um, Democrats put forward during Obama's tenure was. Um, DOA in a Republican Congress if it increased the deficit. And then there seems to be this um, just complete reversal of even bothering to care about the deficit under a Republican plan. And, um, you know, as, as there, uh, as we go through these proposals, you know, this, this one lowers the top tier tax rate from 39% to 35. It increases the lower tier tax rate from 10% to 12%. The optics of that seem bad in my book, but, uh, you know, some of the other tweaking they're going to do, um, maybe can sell that. Um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when the Bush administration proposed um, tax benefits, you know, everyone got, a, I was just coming out of high school and I don't, everyone got like a $400 check or an $800 check, depending on like what income bracket you were in. Um, and I can't remember if I got one because I think I was, you know, in school and not making any money at the time, but um, everyone got a refund, like a physical check, which was kind of a stunt. Um, but we're still we're still paying for the Bush tax cuts, like the deficit that cu- created, as well as the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war. We're still paying for that in our taxes right now. And so, are are Democrats going to be able to critique this bill from sort of the right? Like we, it is irresponsible to to do this tax plan if it's going to increase the deficit when we're still we're still paying for previous tax cuts. So why is this tax cut necessary? And are Republicans going to be able to make the the sort of trickle down, if you cut taxes for rich people, they'll create jobs. Like we, Reagan was able to sell that. Bush was able to sell that. I don't see Trump and the current Republicans even bothering to attempt to sell the trickle down argument here. I think they're just they, are they brazen and, and they're just going to try and do it. 
Also, they've assumed that the Republican base kind of internalized that logic without having to actually justify it. It's it's kind of a weird form of politics where the assumption is that cutting taxes is going to promote business. The assumption is that cutting taxes is going to create more revenue, even though there's very little data to actually back that up. Uh, and, we have and the Kansas experiment. <laughs> we have the Kansas experiment, which is uh, not going great. And they and on the right, they would point towards the Detroit experiment as the opposite, although. Detroit is actually recovering now. So you touched on something earlier, which was there was this need to actually at least make it look like you were benefiting the middle class. And when Trump, uh, when uh, Bush did the tax credits, he put in a line item for middle class tax relief. There was a a targeted amount of money that middle class people were going to get back. It didn't compare to the upper class tax breaks, but it was there. There was a recognition that um, in order for this to be popular, it has to be real for people who work mm-hmm. at a middle class wage. I haven't seen too much of that in the Trump era. The, the Trump ones seem to be very much targeted as, as tax relief for people who have businesses similar to Trump. It targets the right. estate tax, which is people who already have money. It targets the alternative minimum tax, which is people who take a lot of real estate deductions. Uh, it targets uh, those high-end brackets. All of these seem targeted at people who have businesses like Trump. Or sort of dynasty families with wealth. Yeah. Um, you were speaking about the um, – the re- for a while, the Republicans had internalized um, the idea that tax cuts would would, mm-hmm. would do the trickle-down thing. Um, I, I kind of attribute that to the Paul Ryan, um, Mitt Romney types. of uh, When they talk about um, regulation and taxes, um, that that is the standard institutional, traditional Republican mm-hmm. mindset. And in my head, the, the Trump wave – was a pushback against that. And I wonder if the Trump base is going to qu- as, as automatically buy into the idea that high-end tax cuts are going to benefit them. I- is that an automatic? Also, because a lot of the Trump base, like you said, are made up of mostly poor white individuals uh, who, this is always a weird conversation, and I always laugh whenever they talk about tax reform because they only ever talk about one form of tax. They talk about the income tax. Tax relief in Congress never means anything other than that. But if you look at the taxes that actually affect Trump's base, it's not income tax. It's sales tax. It's real estate tax. It's uh, property uh, property tax. Uh, it's they're all uh, payroll tax is another huge one. There are all of these taxes that could have fallen under tax relief that would have helped his base a whole lot more. And the fact that we're targeting into the income tax, I think, really reveals that this isn't about them. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the, the people who are most excited and who show up, they're not going to benefit directly. But a lot of the people who voted for Trump, you know, are not the red hats at the rallies. They're the people who average about $70,000 a year income and are doing quite well. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised that there isn't a more specific carve out for them in this because the RNC has to know that this is where their support is coming from. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why are they giving the very wealthy the, the you know, they're going to give them the, the big slice, but why aren't they cutting something out specifically for the people that voted for them? So if, if you were to target Trump's audience and tailor a tax cut that would, that would help him with re-election, uh, you would key into the fact that married white women voted for him, uh, voted for him over Hillary. And you'd look at that and you'd go, oh, so we should be targeting our tax credits towards marriage because that ticks all of the dots. That ticks uh, a sustain, you know, uh, 
well-off families that ticks uh, traditional family structure and it and it allows and it's the kind of women who are in your base uh, men and women who are in your base so you would uh, expand the marriage tax tax credit greatly which is that uh, increased deduction that you get when you're married yeah that, that's a really good point Dave that the sort of suburban upper middle class like where's there where's that tossing that tax break to the base here and and maybe that will Maybe that's going to be some of the revisions we'll see as this works its way into Congress. And I, I heard through some of the news articles that uh, some of Trump's donors have actually been getting frustrated at uh, their Congress's ineffective, ineffectiveness at passing bills that benefit them, and they started to threaten fundraising contributions. That was the rumor behind the third yeah. kind of half push here at the end on the health care bill was, well, if you can't repeal Obamacare, we're not going to fund your 2018 races. I don't know. If that's in play here. Well, there's a there's still a federal lawsuit pending for a very wealthy Republican donor in Virginia who is mad that they have yet to repeal Obamacare and is suing the RNC for millions of dollars. <laughs> but Suing the RNC for n- not delivering on a campaign promise? Yes. Is that something you can sue? Well, I mean, <laughs> we're going to dem- find out. <laughs> the Democrats did it over Bernie. Really? Yeah, the, the, uh, there was the lawsuit that was pending uh, over whether primaries uh, are required to be fair. Well, that's more of a structural issue. I, I mean, like the idea that like I donated to you because you promised to do this, and then you, and then you, you didn't, didn't actually deliver. get that done. That seems that, imp- like a that could fundamentally change American politics. But I'm wondering if the D- RNC's defense will mirror what the DNC's defense was, which was basically we don't have to have a fair process and we're not obligated to deliver. And I'm wondering if the RNC will reply with the same defense. You know, we're not obligated to deliver on any of our campaign promises. Well, at least. At least that would be an honest defense. <laughs> Let's take, take a minute here to talk about uh, Puerto Rico. It's been almost two weeks since Hurricane Maria hit. Uh, and uh, last Friday, uh, the mayor of San Juan uh, issued a plea for help, which you can hear here. We are dying here. And I cannot fathom the thought that the greatest nation in the world cannot figure out logistics for a small island of 100 miles by 35 miles long. So May Day, we are in trouble. FEMA asks for documentation. I think we've given them enough documentation. And they have the gall this morning. Look at this. Look at this. They think that weighs enough? We have the gall this morning of asking me, what are your priorities, Mayor? Well, where have you been? And I have been very respectful of the FEMA employees. I have been patient, but we have no time for patience anymore. So I am asking the President of the United States to make sure somebody is in charge that is up to the task of saving lives. They were up to the task in Africa when Ebola came over. They were up to the task in Haiti as they should be. 
because when it comes to saving lives, we are all part of one community of shared values. I will do what I never thought I was going to do. I am begging, begging anyone that can hear us to save us from dying. If anybody out there is listening to us, we are dying and you are killing us with the inefficiency and the bureaucracy. We will make it with or without you. At this point, only 5% of the island's electrical grid ha is currently functional. There are more folks with generators, but uh, they are few and far between. Uh, there are long lines for everything from gasoline to water. People are drinking from streams and uh, 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 it's, uh, it's become quite quite dire in the interior of the island. Uh, there's been some changes in the last week of the response. It looks like we're starting to get a little bit better. You guys following this? A little bit. I've mainly been following uh, the U.S.'s inaction relating to it, which is kind of surprising because it does follow um, Texas and Florida recovery efforts. And there's kind of a... a tradition, I'll, I'll go with it, uh, whenever a state of the United States gets hit by a natural disaster, uh, Congress tends to approve FEMA money f uh, to, help, to help them recover. And what I think this is just shadowing is that the U.S. doesn't consider Puerto Rico actually a state in that sense. I mean, they're, they're not a state in their, their voting rights, but uh, mo up to this point, there, there was always kind of an effort to make them see yes, they're part of the United States and we should at least think of them as like the 51st state, even if they get no voting rights. And it's interesting that uh, there's been kind of just a shut door sort of uh, approach to helping them. We didn't help them with their bankruptcy. We don't help them with their natural disasters. They're kind of just out in the cold. The the geography of it, um, as, as ineloquently as Trump put it all, um, you know, being out in the so geographically distant from the U.S., you know, when there's a an issue on the Florida coastline or um, Texas, anywhere along the, the Gulf of Mexico, people people get out ahead of time, or if they stayed, you know, and if the area is just a wreck, you can kind of go to a neighboring state. You can get there pretty easily, and so these people are stranded in, on this island and not able to, to go anywhere. And what we're, our relief efforts are usually about the long-term rebuilding. So we're going to auth authorize funds that are going to help rebuild roads and infrastructure and houses and pick up where people's insurance doesn't help out, where, where flood insurance or hurricane insurance is, is, is missing, and you're going to have individual homeowners a little bit of help to mm -hmm. put their roof back on. But that's six months down the road. That's a year down the road. What so, Puerto Rico needs now is, like, emergency medical aid, water, you know, gasoline. And, and we're not used to having to make an area that's so isolated um, – doing like an immediate term rescue effort. But I have to believe that if this same thing happened to Hawaii, our reaction would we would expedite it more. <laughs> do we have much does do we have much of a military presence in Puerto Rico like we do in Hawaii? Not not to the same degree, no. Um and you know like you like you both alluded to, Puerto Rico's been in a bad state for a long time. And uh you know to to use their their power company is an example. Their power company went bankrupt 
earlier in the year because they couldn't afford to pay off the loans that they'd taken out to buy oil to keep everything burning so that there was power on the island. And when that happened, a lot of their employees, these highly skilled electrical engineers, retired or left the island for better paying jobs in the United States because they can move freely when the airports are functional. And so that their their whole electrical grid was already in a deep crisis. And this is really, once the immediate harm is addressed, perhaps an opportunity for the United States to take better care of its colony here in Puerto Rico, or to make some sort of fundamental change. Or they could do what, uh, I'm going to blank on the exact island, I want to say it was Samoa, uh, recently switched out their power company. This was a, a deal with uh, Tesla, uh, where they set it up where they went completely solar. And they still keep the gas as a backup generator, but one of the reasons they did that was to eliminate the risk that you were talking about. It, it required a little less funding, it required less maintenance, and it required less technical know-how to maintain it with the added benefit that you're not in trouble if your shipment doesn't come that month. So if you were to tally up the, the optics of this, um, this seems worse than Trump's or than Bush's uh, Katrina, um, or, or it's likely to be. Will Trump suffer as much negative fallout from this? I, I worry that, you know, his, his supporters are not going to take offense to this the way that a lot of America took offense to the, the government's poor handling of Katrina. I think uh, a bunch of 50-plus-year-olds out of Florida are a lot more dear to America's heart, uh, than, uh, especially to Trump's base, than, uh, um, than our colony is. Yeah, I mean, at least half the country doesn't know that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. Uh, and immediately, I don't think that there will be real serious repercussions because— I, I see the country right now as in a state of nihilism fatigue where nothing matters for so long that you just start to internalize that and it's like, oh, nothing can change. This is just how it's going to be. But I think long term, this is going to have far more significant consequences because a you know feature of the uh, people of Puerto Rico being U.S. citizens is that if they move to the U.S. mainland, which they are free to do, right. and they establish residency, then they get to vote so, in presidential elections. So if a natural disaster, let's say, pushed a large population of Puerto Ricans to immigrate, basically, to the mainland, they would enhance the voting populations of the states they moved to? Right. And, you know, they're not going to forget about this. And their kids aren't going to forget about this. This is this is going to be a long-term generational crisis. I mean, just the stupidity inherent that, you know, is typical of the administration's response to anything. But the, you know, discovering that Puerto Rico is an island midway through the crisis. Uh, <laughs> the we don't want to waive the Jones Act because American shipbuilders really like it. Right. And, of course, they really like it. You know, if I gave Devlin $50 every time I got my paycheck and, you know, my partner came to me and said, I don't think you should do that anymore. And I said, well, Devlin wants to keep it. <laughs> I mean, that's the same argument. It, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And uh, uh, the minor things like the U.S. hospital ship, the USS Comfort, not being deployed in what was obviously a 
situation tailor made for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm frankly I'm surprised that uh, 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 we're not the only uh, nation with a hospital ship. China has one as well. I'm surprised that they they didn't dispatch theirs because it would have arrived already, <laughs> and it would have been a gigantic public relations coup worldwide. And there was a, when they had elections in Puerto Rico, this was on our earlier show, there was a movement to have an independent Puerto Rico. And you got to ask, you know, how, how poorly do we have to treat them before the populace of Puerto Rico decides that they don't want to be a colony anymore? And as you already mentioned, they are on an island separate from us. Yeah, you imagine the, the response would have been different if they had two senators and a member of Congress. Actually, they'd have several because there's three and a half million people there. So uh, uh, that's way way more than North Dakota's population. Yes, I think the the minimum sixty five or six hundred and fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and alternatively, if they were an independent country, they could have been in a better situation to debt finance, to right. to, uh, to make their own infrastructure investments, to uh, negotiate a trade deal with China in exchange for help. Or something. And yeah, and they wouldn't be, like right now, a lot of the government is beholden to hedge fund managers. Mm-hmm. So there's this real concern that if Congress doesn't specify in an aid package, otherwise, these creditors will be able to take money from any aid package before it actually reaches the island. Wow. Um, now, I've seen Venezuela-style companies solve this problem through nationalizing <laughs> their problems, but uh, I imagine that's gonna not going to fly in a U.S. territory. Not no, not not so long as Congress determines what rules they get to follow. And uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me here on KMRE for a global musical adventure in the Global Village. Each week we explore music from all around the world, from classic recordings to the latest releases, and a wide variety of artists inspired by international sounds. World Music in the Global Village, Saturday nights at 9, here on KMRE 102.3 FM Bellingham. Your community, your voice, your station. Welcome back to the American Carnage Report. I'm Dave Willingham, joined by Mike Estes and Devlin Sweeney here on KMRE 102.3 FM Bellingham and KMRE.org worldwide. I uh, want to take a take a somewhat fun detour here. Uh, the Republican Governors Association has launched a new online publication called The Free Telegraph in order to post positive stories about their members and post unflattering stories and pictures of Democratic governors. And uh, the, re- the reason that's fun news is because they initially did not disclose that they were behind it. And once the Associated Press found out and contacted them, they added a disclaimer at the bottom of the page indicating that it was a project of the Republican Governors Association. And my question for my esteemed guests today is, in this era of political nihilism and fake news, is this surprising in the slightest. It's not surprising. It also feels like kind of a weak attempt, like, uh, to to put up, like, an astroturfing public um, PR site. Like, you really need to build a base of, of followers. And, like, I just don't see something like the RGA being able to pull off, like, the long-term support. Um, 
And every single time I see a, a governor in a debate, they're always going, look at these accomplishments I've done as governor. And it's always, A, there isn't usually a good way of fact-checking those. And B, usually the facts they're mentioning are things that people have never heard of, because if you don't live in that state, you're unaware of what's been going on. So this, like when I heard about it, this almost seemed like an attention grab of the, look, we have a place where we can showcase what we've been doing that the rest of the country isn't caring about. Right. You wonder if like the long-term plan was for them to be able to send out campaign mailers with glowing endorsements from the free telegram. <laughs> Right. I've been seeing this more and more. Um, I, I see this with um, energy industry um, stuff locally where, um, you know, where Whatcom County has a lot of um, discussion about Cherry Point and e- exports and kind of big, big picture issues that affect these b- very large companies. And they set up um, sort of astroturfing websites and Facebook ads and, and Twitter ads. They're usually branded as BP or whatever the company is. It's, it's pretty – it's fairly transparent – who's behind it but it's it's definitely like this pro messaging campaign um and so it's when you when you put a layer in between the the sort of organization of the company directly that's where it's like what what is the free telegraph that's you know i i would hope that people are discerning and try and figure out what sources you know what what is the reputation of this source that i'm reading but Clearly, that is not something that everyone does these days. I think the majority of people validate whether they believe it's a trustworthy source based on whether it backs up the opinions they already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I I have to say thank you to the Republican Governors Association because it was really entertaining going through reading articles after article about, uh, uh, um, you know, the various various governors uh, around the country because they were so – just cartoonishly partisan. It was fantastic. I mean, even beyond uh, Breitbart or Fox News or anything that you know, a, a story would start, the failed governor of, <laughs> and yeah, very, very fun for me. The failing New York Times. <laughs> Taking a bit of a detour, I want to talk a little bit about a bill moving its way through the Senate right now. It is called... The Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act of 2017. And in order to talk about it, I need to go back a little bit and talk about the Communications Decency Act of 1996, uh, which was one of the attempts in that period to prevent uh, children from seeing pornography on the Internet and uh, was introduced by Senator Slate Gordon of Washington. And uh, it would have criminalizing sending or providing obscene or indecent materials to anyone under the age of 18, and most of the law has been struck down in in uh, the court since, but uh, the most important part of it uh, was Section 230, which was originally called the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, which uh, subheading Who doesn't one, love freedom and families? Who doesn't love freedom and families? Uh, subheading 1 of paragraph C, the, the, the money section... It says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And that is a long way of saying that YouTube is not responsible for something terrible or illegal that you upload on their site. And you are not responsible when one of your friends from high school posts something terrible or illegal on your Facebook page. Uh, subheading 2 provided... Uh, uh, a uh, uh, 
provided a space where online providers could remove content from their site that was illegal, bad, whatever, and they could not be sued for violating the, the poster's rights. Uh, none of this applies to criminal, state, or intellectual property laws, and that's important, and keep that in mind. So the Stop, the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act of 2017 uh, changes that by uh, 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 updating the definition of sex trafficking in the United States and making a specific carve-out for Section 230, and it updates the sex trafficking law by adding the definition, the term participation in a venture means knowing conduct by an individual or entity by any means that assists, supports, or facilitates a violation of the law, which is a lot of words that are not defined in that very definition. Uh, by not defining the term knowingly and knowing conduct, you are creating a gigantic ambiguity that has already spawned decades of lawsuits in the copyright realm. Uh, YouTube and Viacom fought for seven years over whether knowing meant knowing specifically or knowing that it could be done. Uh, there's uh, no definition of facilitation. And a lot of Internet activists are coming out very against this. And Google. And Google. Um <laughs> as well as some other groups you might not expect, like Heritage Action. Uh, but uh, sex trafficking is bad. Nobody likes sex trafficking. Everybody wants sex trafficking to stop. But it's important that this be done correctly and in the right way. Empowering state attorneys general to sue online providers over vague terms is going to be bad news, not for Facebook and Google, but for smaller sites and communities who don't have the money to fight a multi-million dollar, multi-year lawsuit over what the word facilitation means. You guys got, want to throw anything on that? Well, it, it's another internet privacy <laughs> uh, bill, and we, we get one of these every couple of years. And this is the area where I'm usually most frustrated with Democrats, uh, because I I would expect that a a party that's, that prides itself on protecting privacy of people when it comes to social issues would also protect them when it comes to internet issues where there you have some expectation of privacy you have some private data you have a kind of a more new net net neutrality sort of perspective on the internet and what I've been finding more and more is I keep having to rely on Rand Paul from Kentucky to stand up for my privacy rights. And I, I find that, I, I guess I just wish Democrats were better on these issues. But I find that they tend to vote the wrong, they vote in favor of uh, uh, corporate perception and they vote in favor of less privacy when it comes to the internet. This seems to be driven authentically by the sex trafficking issue. They're not, they're not trying to, to push something through and using that as, as cover. But the, the issue is, so, what it really comes down to is, is a website like Craigslist or a, an internet forum like Reddit where um, those might be used for consensual adult hookup kind of conversations. And that, that happens and that's fine. But when that starts to, to be used for 
um, problematic versions of that type of activity where there's payment involved or age issues involved. Um, how do you draw a line legally that says we can actually, so like Craigslist can't be sued because people are using it to like consensually hook up and that's, that's, that's an important protection. But how can we enforce the types of um, in, internet solicitation that we don't want? And where this bill seems to be leading, a lot of the critiques would be that it would force providers to sort of autom to, to manually police um, the content, and that becomes a scaling problem where you don't want to just pay 10,000 people to sit there looking at every message and deeming it okay or not. So, so you use automated tools. So it, it, this, this, a lot of the discussion is around how do automated tools filter content? Uh, do we have are the tools good enough yet? And the answer is really no. Um, you know, spam filters have gotten pretty good, but they're not good enough. But you show me a spam filter, and I can write an email that can go around. Exactly, it. and and my my worry is that is so one of the one of the issues is only the big providers will be able to afford the good automated tools, and the smaller providers will either have to bear a cost of manual review or something like that. And you're you're really just going to nudge behavior in a slightly different direction. The people who are doing the bad behavior are going to be very good at adding things to their messages that get around the automated filters. You use coded language. You come up with new acronyms. Whatever it is, the community that the community of bad actors will adapt and work around the system. And so it's it's Congress looking to set a policy, unless you have a really good understanding of the technology and where the technology is going in the next 10 years, um, setting this policy is going to be more problematic than, than helpful. Um, and you're, you're not really going to be able to stop the bad behavior that we all w want to stop um, through a, a route that doesn't deeply understand what, what's happening. And I, I kind of wish we would take this away from an internet issue and treat, treat it back like a law enforcement issue. If your problem is with this acti is sex trafficking, which is horrible and a problem with this country, then I kind of wish they would treat it more like a law enforcement issue. You know, do we need to fund more sting operations? Do we need to fund more personnel who are actually going at this? This seems like uh, our country is saying, we're not very good at stopping this, so we're going to throw the pressure onto companies to deal with it. Uh, because we can cover up our own inadequacy of, of able to deal with this, rather than confronting we have a problem and what are some better strategies and how we can shut these operations down. Right. Nobody forced into the sex trade is saved by this bill. No. And, you know, Mike, you, you, you mentioned the, the filtering and scanning problem, and that's the best case scenario of this. The other is, depending on what the term knowing means, companies may say, we're not going to touch this at all. We are not going to scan for any of this because if we find out if there's a hit, then we are then liable. Oh, so we're going we're gonna to do no abuse policing. We're right. not, we're not gonna, if you say someone's harassing you on, our, on Twitter, we're not even going to look at it because if we look at the content, now we're liable because now we know. Right. Um, the other worry I had is, is sort of um, an intimidation tactic against smaller websites, which I think you were getting to, is like, oh, this forum is discussing issues so, so say it's Antifa or something like, I don't like that group's website. I'm going to sue them because they knowingly allow conversations that could have something to do with sex trafficking. So I'm going to get them shut down for five years and they can't afford to defend it. And so if, if the law is unclear enough, you can use it to sort of like the DMCA was, has been used over the years to sort of silence people by through a copyright issue when really you're just you just don't like their their message. Right, just earlier this year there was the the case of the popular YouTuber who somehow has been making millions of dollars a year playing video games online 
who was playing a video game and repeatedly using the N-word over and over again because that's entertaining to him. And the makers of a video game said, okay, we're going to use the DMCA to pull down the videos that he did showing our game, which is insane. And not, not I mean, I don't like this guy. I don't like what he did. But right. they used the wrong law <laughs> to go after him because it has become so easy to do that. Yeah, and so to to not inf- to not enforce your copyright protections across this whole industry because it's not bothersome to you until you specifically don't like the content. As much as I think that guy should have received punishment, that was not the right way to do it, and and it shows how problematic these laws can be. Or, or again, yeah, I, I keep coming back to we're looking at this the wrong way. I can have a problem with what someone's saying, but that doesn't mean I have a right to shut them down. So it's, I, I can think that what that person is saying is vitriol and I would never want to expose myself to that. But that doesn't mean that I have the, the right to silence them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what frustrates me about these situations is it's another avenue that allows the government to silence people, to silence companies, to restrict that. And that I don't think is helpful. Well, and it's not that the government is is necessarily doing the restriction. I mean, the, the laws to the government, it's that the law is so broad that it could theoretically be used to shut down anything. And it's only applied when people complain. So then your, your a sort of citizen complaint is, is allowing the government to, to shut things down. So, sorry, let me because re- it's too broad. Let me rephrase that. The government is giving a tool to companies that would allow them to shut yes. down other companies in, in what I believe is not a very democratic or fair process. Yeah. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, Want to talk a little bit about uh, um, there's a new travel ban that has been issued by the Trump administration re- restricting travel from Iran, Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, Yemen, and Chad. And uh, the addition of North Korea, which doesn't allow its citizens to leave the country anyway, and Chad has uh, puzzled some foreign policy experts like the deputy director of the Africa program at the Center for International Studies, Richard Downey, who said, I'm not even going to try and make sense of this one. Uh, Chad's been fighting Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups and has worked closely with the U.S., including hosting military exercises and uh, have been partnered with Nigeria to help them fight Boko Haram and retake territory that they've seized. And the kind of general... Twitter consensus that I saw immediately was, let's include some non-Muslim countries so that it can't get struck down as a Muslim ban this time. They're getting smarter very slowly. <laughs> well, that is the nice thing about taking three attempts at something is that they will they will get better at accomplishing their goals. That said, I look forward to Bob Ferguson's third legal challenge from the state of Washington. Yeah, and it, it really kind of illustrates... The problem when you don't have uh, people who care about the policy involved in the policy or involved in – who care about other policies who are involved in the policy because Chad has been generally considered an ally. You know, there have been criticisms of their behavior. They are ruled by a strong man, Idris Deby, who is not friendly to democratic groups in the country. But that, that's got to put them like middle of the road in terms right. of countries. You know, we're we're still we're still working with uh, Uzbekistan, which treats political opponents horribly, and this is 
if they had talked to one one lifer at the State Department, I'd like to think that somebody would have pointed out they're on our team when it comes to this. I, I think they're just taking this from a legal route of what what strategies, like Mike said, what strategies can we do that will make this pass? I, I don't think there's any any thought towards the impacts of this law. Yeah, the, the, the rollout was quieter. Uh, the things that sunk them the first time um, was talking about it in loose language. And if Trump, you know, Trump saying or other administration officials saying, even back during the campaign, we're going to do this travel ban because of X, that that was used against them in court to say the motivation here was um, racially um, or, or religiously driven. And then also to, to diversify the country list a little. So there's some cover. Um so it's not just Muslim countries. Um, it seems solely designed to help them in court. But you, you have to wonder, like, if you're coming up with this arbitrary list of seven countries, how do you have to justify to a judge, like, oh, this country has this threshold of known, like, instances of people trying to come into our country and, you know, do terrorist acts? Like, there's no data to support that. So how, how do you show that you came to this number of seven um, and sh- like, I would hope that they would have to show that it's not just arbitrary. Like, why are these being picked? But well, that you know, that is, I think, going to be the question of our age. Do you know, legally do these sorts of things have to have some sort of basis in reality? And right now, that is an unanswered question. That just about does it for the time we have this week. I want to mention that. Uh, uh, some terrible violence has broken out in Catalonia this weekend as Spanish police have attacked people attempting to vote in the independence referendum on Sunday. Uh, as of this recording, hundreds have been injured. Uh, earlier, the Spanish government had declared the referendum illegal and ordered the Catalan police to stop it from proceeding. The Catalan police did not, so uh, the national police were sent in. It's a very bad scene. We're going to talk about this more next week alongside the Kurdish referendum. This has been the American Carnage Report here on KMRE 102.3 FM and KMRE.org. We are based out of the Spark Museum of Electrical Invention. I want to thank Mike Estes, Devlin Sweeney, our fabulous engineer Sharon Mannix. Please join us again next week. Hit us up on Facebook. We're on iTunes. We'll talk to you soon.